Hi, this is Johnny Nexus, the editor and chief writer of Critical Miss, the web scene for dysfunctional gamers. I'm also the author of the any nominated novel, Game Night. Critical Miss aims to cover the less serious side of pen and paper role-playing. We're frequently rude, occasionally thought-provoking, usually funny, and hopefully always entertaining. After hibernation of five years, we've just published a long-awaited 11th issue. Please check it out at www.criticalmiss.com. Thanks. RPPR, episode 63, Stylish Substance. I came up with that. I know, you did. And I also noticed the announcer voice didn't kick in until after. You were mostly all the way through that. I know. Uh, it's it's, just like, been... it's like he was running back from the bathroom like oh, like, oh, God, I'm supposed to be on now. I know. And we're too hardcore to uh, uh, re-record this, so life uh, not, you'll just have to deal with it. Life does not start That's my new motto, deal with it. So, of course, with me, as always, is Tom Church. And hey, what's up? Here, we've fully recovered from Gen Con. I've been posting uh, the Gen Con games. Uh, we've just posted the Fiasco and the World War One game with Scott Glantz and Caleb and Aeroplanes. Yes, aeroplanes. And uh, so uh, and we're going to get... Ba- nothing bad happens in airplanes. <laughs> well, not, not to Caleb and I. We're fucking gunning those <laughs> sons of bitches down. It's like, uh, it's like, oh, you think you're bad, Cthulhu, huh? huh we bitch? both had sharp-edged dice, Tom. We both did. So... Uh, Things so, die. That's better than an elder sign. Uh, in this game, it was. Um, so, anyways, uh, we will start posting the Wild Talents campaign and the Eclipse Phase campaign. Very uh, it's good stuff. Uh, putting a lot of them down the stream very shortly. Uh, and we will, uh, of course, we'll still intersperse it with some one shots. Uh, and we just ran some cool Call of Cthulhu Invectus set in ancient Rome. So I look forward to that. Uh, so uh, we, yeah, we have a lot in the plans. Uh, in RPPR news, the only thing to of note is Zombies of the World, episode three of the web series is up. It'll be embedded in the notes of this show. Uh, and uh, you can click on the website and take a look at it. I put some lightning bolt effects in it. Uh, there's a robot fighting an Aztec mummy. It's a. Uh, Sadly, the Aztec mummy is extinct. It is. Uh, so uh, you can see some of the rare archival footage, some of the last moments ever caught on film of the uh, Aztec mummy. So It will blow your mind. It will. It really will. Yeah. And uh, and this is not news, but I'd just like to uh, give another big thanks to uh, my friend Mia Tell on the uh, fanfic.net forums. She is writing stuff for the uh, sci-fi game I'm running with the other group. Yeah. So she's taking my ideas that are written in my, you know, monotone pig voice of a writing style Aww. and putting it into her own sonorous, dreamy. Um, are you fishing for compliments about your fan fiction? No, I'm not. Yeah, I'm sure. Though if you, you know, yeah, if you, if you have anything positive yeah. to say, yeah. Anything negative to say, I'll No, pro- no, no, constructive criticism. That's what you want, Tom. Which uh, actually is a rare commodity apparently on fanfic.net. Right. Because most people, I can give you. I know most criticism. people. Most people don't know how to criticize. I know, I, but I. Can't but I want to thank her. Just want to thank you again. You uh, took my crap and have turned it into your yes. art. You've turned my my straw that is my writing and spun it into gold. Oh, yes. Oh, that, that's pretty hardcore, Ross. Yeah. See what I did there. See yeah, what? I know. I, I've read Rumpelstiltskin too. It's. It's called, yeah. Anyway, uh, storytelling. So uh, in this episode, we are going to be talking about adventure design, scenario design. Now, uh, we've talked about this before. Well, of course. It's, it's a big topic, though. I mean, it's like the social contract. I mean, uh, but in this episode, we're not going to – We previously, we've kind of focused on writing the adventure as a standalone 
uh, thing, uh, you know, the one shot where everything is new. Um, and there's a lot, and we, we can do a lot of episodes. And we're going to talk about this more in upcoming episodes as well. It's talking about writing adventures for a campaign, which is kind of like, I think what most adventures are written for the, you do a one shot, that's fine. But you know, most people are running campaigns that you know, people that are writing adventures are writing adventures for their campaigns. Cause you know, you yeah. need a lot of them to, in order to have a campaign in the first place. We've so, discovered that. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the question is, how do you do this? What, what, uh, and how do you keep this interesting? And, you know, you have to, you, you, one thing, you know, difference between writing a campaign adventure and writing a standalone adventure is campaign adventure. You have all this material you build up and you have to keep reinforcing. You can't just keep, you know, making shit up, but, um, and we'll get into that in future episodes, but the first thing I want to talk about in this episode, stylish substance is the idea of design versus style. And a lot of people mix these up and a lot, I see a lot of people thinking that there's, you know, it's very common, especially in people that think that there's the one true way of you know writing mm. adventures and role playing games and the the fact is that there really isn't there are there are, uh, there are some things you always want to do regardless of what type of adventure you're going to doing but there are some choices that are based on your style your personal style as a gm and the style of the genre or the game that you're you're running mm, right so um now this came up because uh as you as i mentioned just a little while ago is you know, we have the Wild Talents campaign. That's the one I'm running. That's yeah. superheroes, and I'm and I'm doing a street level campaign. And I, I you know, little air quotes there uh, because we've had some. Uh, debate some over yeah, this. That, that, was, that was some very uh, sarcastic air quotes yeah. too, uh, and a little head bob there because an eye rolling. Uh, because we've had some debate on the RPPR forums about what constitutes street level. And some people think, you know, Batman, basically, or something like that. But for me, street level, I was going for Spider-Man street level, which is confined to one you know, sort of home. You know, there there are some superpowers, some major superpowers, but their motives, what they do and what they want to do is the, uh, the, the, the heroes and the villains are very relatable. They're very kind of like, I want to protect the neighborhood because I have guilt over my, you know, uncle's mm-hmm. death. I want to rob a I want to rob a bank because I want to be rich. You know, they're not like Doctor Doom is obviously not a street level character. No, but he wants to rule the world as Doc Octopus is a street level character because he wants revenge on Peter Parker and a few you know things like that. Like even though they're both genius intellects and everything. Mm-hmm. So, um, so anyway, so I've been running that Wild Talents campaign. And then Caleb, you know, the uh, he of Lover in the Ice and Bryson Springs. Uh, you all been, love Caleb. Yes, everybody loves Caleb. Uh, has been running uh, for the last few months an Eclipse Phase campaign that we are in the second tier of. We we started in Venus and we're now on Luna. And he's been running it with some, you know, the adventures are all very well designed, but there are some stylistic changes. And it made me realize, you know, my style isn't the universal style. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Because, you know, I haven't played in a campaign in like fucking forever. So I kind of forgot, like, oh, yeah, people can do things differently and it's not wrong. Uh, Ross is not always right. Uh. The horrible monster in Ross rebels at this. I know, exactly. So, um,. So when we're talking about this, we're going to first like define our terms because we're you know uh, um, the the first thing is good design. Good de- and by good design we mean 
choices you make when writing, designing an adventure that you should always use regardless of genre. Uh, we came up with three examples uh, just so you, you get a sense of what we're going for. The first one is no consistent railroading. And by this, we mean you don't railroad the players from the entire start of the, from the start of the game. From start, to the like, from start to finish, you don't have them on a leash. Right. Uh, you don't want, because otherwise it's obviously, That's you're like, just telling them a story. <clears throat> you're not really letting them play a game. So, um, yeah. Anyways, um, so the idea is with this, um, what are you going to, uh, uh, but we'll, we'll get into, uh, why this is, why we, we specifically said consistent railroading. So. Um, the next thing, good design choice is that sh- there should be plot progression, which means move the game, move the story and the game forward. Right. Uh, I know we've had some horror stories, you know, where people have told us like we were playing a game and then we got to this one area and nothing happened and we didn't know what to do. The GM wouldn't tell us. And two hours later, the game ended and the campaign ended. So that sucks. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if if you notice, they're, if you, I say if you notice, if you're the players, if the if the players aren't moving things forward, and they're just not doing it, you gotta you gotta jump in there and, and do it, right? So, um, so that may be maybe maybe a little bit railroading, but well, sometimes you have to. Well, yeah, but in general, a good it's always a good design choice to have the plot progress, and I know that sounds very basic because good design choices that are these apply regardless of what you're trying to do. Um, and the third thing is that you should violate player expectations occasionally. And this is kind and of the, like where... Occasionally becomes, seems to be the thing that people have a problem right. with. Now, the, now, what we mean is that the players should not always expect their expectations should be, you know, challenged or shaken or violated, violated every once in a while. Because that's, the you know, while this is a game, it's also a good story. And stories have violated expectations. That's the whole point yeah. is that they, there is change. Um, like, if you can tell the ending of a game in the beginning, that's not a good thing. Well, I mean, the thing is, it shouldn't be the obvious thing. For example, if you have a story about a guy who always loses, and he loses throughout the entire story, and it ends with him losing, and he doesn't change, then why did we listen, watch the story? Or, or, or inversely, a guy who always wins, you know, uh, a character that always wins. He, the, the character always succeeds in everything. They never have any problems. They never change. They're the exact same at the beginning, at the end, as they are at the beginning. And by the way, I've never met, I've never even heard of anyone like that. Right. In my life. Right. In real life, that doesn't happen. Yet people change. Um, but in, you know, across in fan fiction, this is the Mary Sue syndrome, you know, the, the, the invisible Uber character. And that's why it's bad storytelling. So you need to violate their expectations uh occasionally but if you do you can't do it always you can't always violate their expectations you can't like because they're never if they're if they can never predict anything that's going to happen yeah then they're, they, they're going to lose interest there's no yeah there's no there's they don't there's you lose immersion and that sucks uh mm, and if and you we never you, violate expectations we just explain it you know like uh you're level one scrubs and everybody hates you and the universe hates you and you're always going to lose and like uh, round one, you fight, or, uh, fight one, there's a uh, beholder, and it kills you. Okay, make new characters. Uh, second fight, a uh, hundred golems show up, and they kick your ass, you know. And, and uh, 
Yeah, Ra- but, but three after, mind flares. You after know? about fifteen minutes, you're going to be reciting this to an empty room. Yeah, after yeah, your third round of player characters. Yeah, after your third party wipe, you're going to be like, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll you know, we're going to go get some beer. We understand what we, we we know what to expect now. We just you're not interested. It's in like, it but anymore. we don't want we don't want to keep dying. Yeah. So like, what the fuck you talking about? People want so to these die. so design choices are kind of harder to are you know a little little more loose uh, uh, because again these are should be applied to whatever game you're doing. Now the the other thing is style choices. Style choices are choices that are dependent on who you are as a GM, what your style is, and also what the game is, what kind of theme you want to use, what kind of thematic stuff. Um, now railroading. So we'll just contrast these with uh, uh, the design choices. So railroading. So sometimes you do want to railroad players. Yeah. Now they're like, oh my god, what? Is, uh. So Tom, when would you railroad players? Well, I've already mentioned one. When one like if they're just not doing anything, or if they're not if they're not going anywhere, if they're thoroughly hung up on something, right? You know, like you know, like they've reached a a plot point that. You know they've got they've done what they need to, right? But they just like no, we we missed something. Yeah, and no matter what, how much evidence you put before them, they keep on no, no, we missed something else. We're gonna look again. Like, like, well, you've looked around for the twelfth time, and you still haven't. This happened to your group with a. Yes, I'm talking from experience. (laughs) Do you have an example or like a specific? Uh, well, I don't want to name names. (laughs) Player A. Yes, they were actually, uh. In the sci-fi game I'm running, actually, yeah, they come across a ship, you know, a ship adrift in space. Yeah, they go aboard and find that there's obviously signs of violence, but there's no body, there's no bodies on the ship. Right, and they they find that you know the they get the ship's log and have the ship's flight information, which is really all they were supposed to get, but they would not leave the ship. And, no, no, like they, there's probably there's something else here. <laughs> So the first time you think, okay, well they're being thorough, you know. So I, you know, let it go. But then they go through the ship. They go through the whole ship another time. Still, they don't find anything. So I'm thinking, okay, maybe not they get it. But no, oh, we missed something. We'll go again. And that this, I counted eight times they went around the ship, just convinced there was something they missed. Wow. So finally, I have to just so in, so in order to railroad them, I essentially I just said. um, the reactor's coolant system had been shut down, <laughs> and now it's starting to reach critical mass. So you have to get off the ship. Yeah, fuck you. Get off. Get, get that on worked. The ball, yeah. That worked. They get off the ship, evacuated, and the ship exploded. It was really cool and awesome. And then, then they moved on. Like, and the thing is, as they left, they were still saying, "We probably missed something on that ship." <laughs> but then I, I actually, and I quote, said. Well, I guess we'll never know now, will we? <laughs> what would be funny is if you later on you make up some plot point and you say because you missed us on the ship, so now this and they'd is be like, "Oh, like, I knew we missed yeah, something." Some asshole with a ray gun pointing at them and like, ah, it's, you know, twirling his mustache like, ah, all right, fool, do it again because you missed that one clue. But that's uh, one moment when they just won't take the hint. Yeah. So occasionally you do want a railroad. You you want to move the game forward, um, and, and of course, uh, conversely with plot progression, sometimes you want to stop. Like in a mystery game, and this is very common among GMs in the sort of what they, the self-described old school style, not just D and D, but especially Call of Cthulhu, which is uh, 
to never like use a poker face when running the game, never give the players any hints, never step behind the step in front of the screen and be like, here's what you need to do or blah, 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 blah. In, you know, an old school GM would literally let the players search the ship a dozen times and just like never give them any warning whatsoever one way or the other. Now, uh, Scott Glancy, of course, has talked about this at great lengths because, you know, uh, listeners, the the Charlie Chaplin, yeah, the Chaplin incident where he let the players go on this four hour tangent to fucking hunt down Charlie Chaplin and his friends and murder as many of them as possible. And that's the kind of thing that, like, that's that's a stylistic choice. If you want to be that guy, uh, <laughs> like, the choice to not let to let the players go in mad with – because uh, the reason why it's a style choice and not a design choice is because that's the kind of game you want to run. Like, you want to run a game that's more cinematic where the plot progresses in relatively mm-hmm. smooth fashion. The players see explosions and that's cool and they have all this kind of interaction. But I do – you know, but I, I do give them choices. Yeah. And – uh and I'm ready for any. I'm, I try to be ready for any contingency. Right. Yeah. You want to be interactive. It's not again not utterly railroading. Just you want to keep moving. But the other thing is the other style choice is the old school where players have to earn everything, emphasize realism as much as possible, and just let them you know uh, make it a contest of will almost between the players and the GM. Mm. And that's an equal. That's a valid style. A lot of people like that. They think that the your style of gaming is too soft, too easy. What's the point of playing if it's too easy? I mean, you played a video game that's been too easy, uh, you know, video games that have been too easy, you're like, oh, fuck it, this is boring, you know? They want to be challenged by it. So that's that's, what, that's mm-hmm. why they choose that style of gaming. At least that's how I interpret yeah. it. So, oh, and but uh, speaking of... I, actually, I just, actually, just this weekend had a... in uh, The sci-fi game Round 2. Mm-hmm. This is the second time I've tried to run it, and it's going well now, by the way. But I actually had a moment where the where the plot literally did just stop because they really liked the scene. David's David's character, well, that game I could this is this is a different game than the one they searched the ship twelve times. <laughs> okay. So David's character is a uh, musician. Yeah. And one of the plot points was is they were going aboard this uh, station to, uh, and he had a gig to play. Right. So and it was really just the whole point of the scene was he did, would do his gig while Aaron's character would gather information and a contract on their next job. Mm-hmm. But David got David and even Aaron got really into him setting up and doing the set. Yeah, and you know interacting with some people in the bar and a scene I had only planned to last about you know five or six minutes right. went on into an hour. Right. But it was clicking, so I let it go. So the, I I just stopped everything and let them let them play out what they wanted to. Right. So there you go. That's a style choice. You could have, uh, if you're a different style, like you could have had guys with guns burst in and ruin mm-hmm. it. Or you could have say, you know, you could have just literally heard it. Mom, all right, make your dice roll. Come on. We need to go on, mm-hmm. you know. But you're like, all right, no, they want to do this. So this is what I want I to uh, emphasize so, in so the they, game. I mean, they talked to some patrons. Yeah. You know, uh, he signed a few autographs because he, like, real, rolled really well and was entertaining. Yeah. But it didn't amount to anything, but they had a great time. Right. So I so, think that's important too. So yeah, and again, that's that you you let them slow down. You you you're you're in the 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 school. Uh, uh, your style is to let the players have more agency over what happens in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, give them more control over that and make it more collaborative than you know, not necessarily competitive, but less adversarial. So that that's a style choice. Well, um, okay, it's did, not right. It, it's not wrong, but it's just a style. So okay, by the way, I did do some railroading. Yeah. Because the first session that game started out, Aaron managed to thoroughly piss off and humil- and insult David's character. 
So, you know, basically, you know, two thirds of the whole group right. essentially were pissed at each other and didn't want to do stuff together. So I'm like, I had to actually engineer a whole scenario where, okay, I got to get these people back together. Right. So that's kind of, again, that's, you, you want to make sure everybody's on the same wavelength, that everybody's, uh, their mm-hmm. characters are working together. And, you know, an old school GM would not have, it's like, Plot moves on whether or not you guys are, you know, mm-hmm. ready to work with each other or not. I mean, you know, this is how this is a, this is the real world, <laughs> the real world of uh, uh, gaming. So um, mm. you have to uh, find a way to work together despite that. So, but instead, you decide no players need yeah. to cooperate. So, I mean, great times. I mean, oh, and off off topic, but a cool moment. Right in the last session, Aaron got his arm blown off. Okay. I'm using the cyberpunk combat system. Okay. Which I'm finding works really well. And someone did 20 damage to his to one arm. Yeah. So that blew it right off. Yeah. Yeah. That would tend to do that. So. And the uh, thing is, Aaron loved it. Yeah. And I, everyone did because, you know, it's future tech. So he just got a cloned arm replacement. Right. But he said, like, proudly, I got my arm blown off. Right. So, uh, again, that, that, uh, that's good because that shows that the player's style matches up with your own, you know, Mm -hmm. that you guys are on the same wavelength. Um, I can imagine some people going like, Hey, well, like, Ooh, that's what your arm's been blown off. Like what? Yeah. No. Right. Um, and they, uh, uh, of course. So yeah, there's that agreement. Um, and the final thing, you know, violate, uh, uh, player expectations and violating them. Um, now this is kind of an interesting one because it's sort of like going back into the Caleb uh, difference between how I'm GMing, I think, and correct and correct me if I'm wrong. In the Wild Towns campaign, I've been very I've been tried to give you guys like make you aware of what your what the choices are, what the options are, yeah, what the options are, what the choices are, and the and, and the possible consequences. Possible, but I don't like you, you don't you don't say if you if like if you take this path, this will happen. Yeah. If you take the other path, this will happen. Right. I kind of when I GM is what I tend to give player. I tend to reemphasize what players have already, what their characters would reasonably know. Like if your character is very savvy, you know a lot of tactics knowledge. I, I would give you an indication. Well, you could storm the front, but that would obviously have a lot of casualties. Uh, but it would be the most direct, and uh, you go in the roof. It'd be the fastest way. You go through the roof, but you have to be stealthy. And if you failed, you'd be in a very you'd be compromised. Uh, and they could take out the hostages easily. So you know more risk, more reward uh, versus the rel- more you know direct, relatively safer route. You know, you, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what I kind of do. So. I'm going to dub this more the Bioware approach, where, you know, if you ever played a Bioware or Black Isle before then, you know, everything from Planescape Torment to the Fallout games to uh, Knights of the Old Republic, Dragon Age, Dragon Age Mass, uh, Mass Effect, Effect. Um, they tend to make you very aware of what your choices are. If you go do this, it will help, it will give you points in, you know, Light side or dark side or Paragon, Paragon. or like, dark side or Renegade well, points. In Mass Effect, they color code your choices. Yeah, exactly. Well, they do that in Lights in Knights of the Old Republic. I mean, it's light side, dark side, literally. So, um, and in Dragon Age, there's also obvious. You know, they, they 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 give the players a lot of information on what their how their choices will impact the world, and um, so that's kind of what I've been doing. Caleb has been going a different route. Right, because Caleb, you know, we, we it's another spoiler, it's an Eclipse Phase game, and we're investigating a massive conspiracy, a conspiracy that's uh, based, I don't want to spoil it, but it's like people who are engineering very bad things, doing very bad things. 
And so we've, we've been going from place to place trying to follow the clues, the you know trail of breadcrumbs to figure out who's been doing who, – who Who's created, doing the bad shit? Who's doing the bad shit and how do we stop them? And the thing is we, we're given choices like we're given multiple leads. Like we can go to this station and talk to these people or we can infiltrate this station – you know, uh, and try and do this. And we, we sometimes have some indication on what's going to be more combat heavy or, or not, but we haven't, um, it's nowhere near that. Like, especially what happened last time. I'm not going to say, well, actually, I mean, I did post on the forums what the, the aftermath mm-hmm. was. We basically, uh, if you go to the forums, we have a, a thread on the clips phase in the RPG section. And I've been posting little, uh, I've posted two excerpts so far of what, uh, my character is Bartleby. He is a, uh, a lost generation, a psionic, kind of mentally unstable, you know, mm-hmm. uh, very, very paranoid, you know, sort of like yeah. survive at all costs kind of character. And, uh, uh, I'm Preston. A, a, a socialite octopus, uplifted octopus. Um, so, yeah, here's the, here's a classic Halo thing. We had two choices. One was to press on to uh, one research station called Clever Hands mm-hmm. uh, and track down one or one. There were like three possible leads. Uh, clever hands and there was a, uh, a large city called nectar and then there was one lead where we there's that we we were on the station miter and in miter we were researching a scientist that was part of the conspiracy had been paid by the conspiracy to do research for mm-hmm. them and what we we broke into her lab read her her log files basically and found out that she had gone to the surface of the moon to dig up Titan Tech, and if you if you know Eclipse Face, Titan Tech are is basically Skynet with that's a thousand times worse. Like Skynet mixed with the that biomechanical, like that virus movie from ni- like nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, and Dead Space kind of craziness. Mm-hmm. So um, she was going to the surface of the moon to dig up some more samples of this Titan Tech, and, and we were like. Well, okay, it's like find it, like go. Okay, well, we could we could ignore that and just go to Miter, or I mean, go to Clever Hands or Nectar, or we could, you know, uh, I I thought it would be prudent to get in our little ship and go check it out. See, we knew where she was exactly where she'd sat down, so I figured let's just go to go down there. In the worst case scenario, she's infected and we'll have to shoot her. That's not going to be a problem. I mean, there's like one of her and five Man. of us. Wrong. Yeah, so I won't explore what happened exactly, but basically she led us on a long ass. Uh, she she made a lot of distance, and she found some new friends, and bad things happened. It was a very brutal. F- we basically went into a boss fight, um, and, and it was boss. It was pretty boss, but we had no idea. We had no indication that it was going to lead into something that fucking dangerous. As soon as we got some indication that she was infected and that she was, you know, on the move, heading too, towards civilization, it was too late to pull out. Well. We, at that point, I mean, our whole purpose of that we're part agents of firewall. Our whole purpose is to stop shit like that. So we had to pursue her. So you know, there's no no time to call for backup or anything. So we uh, uh, we by pursuing that lead, we went into a major boss fight, and we didn't know that ahead of time. Now, I wouldn't have done that per se. I would have given you more clues to indicate, like if I was doing this in the Wild Talents game, I would have given you guys lots of clues or lots of options to find out oh my god she's you know it's a boss fight she's you know made allies she's got this weapon she's got blah 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 blah. um but what caleb did isn't wrong i mean i thought it was great even though it was a really fucking brutal fight and my character went crazy uh you know uh not totally crazy but it was crazy crazy ish yeah crazy ish lost 25 points of you know sanity um 
what it was that what why it really worked was um because Caleb's theme is like it's a conspiracy. We're pawns of one organization trying to fight, take down the pawns of another organization, and nobody is as they seem. Everyone has misleading agendas. Uh, they're doing shit behind the scenes while we're doing our shit. And so the idea is to, while we have some agency, we're not totally in control of our own fate. You know, that's what the kind of themes he's been reinforcing that we're we're part of a larger mm-hmm. uh, uh, tapestry of lies and deceit and. That so by not giving us more indication of what we're going to get into, that emphasizes that theme, and I think that's great. Now, of course, the first time I realized this, I was kind of frustrated because I was like, I wanted to stop that bad guy, I wouldn't have let him get away. And we're like, uh, fuck, it was too late to do that, you know. Mm-hmm. We were by the time we realized I couldn't chase after that bad guy, he was we were in no position to fight him or take him on. So, uh, but that's not a wrong thing, that's just like he's doing a different design thing. So, um, I mean, for you, Tom, what, what do you think of uh, the, 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 the style choices or what, what are the kind of style? Okay. I'll say, um, you know, the, the way you know, my experience is with your game, yeah. I have to, I, I have to make, I have to think in the, of the future and plan in a completely different way. Yeah. In like, in the wild talents game, <clears throat> I know basically what I can choose. Yeah. I just have to think, okay, what what could possibly happen? How much do I know about how evil Ross is? And <laughs> so, but, you know, you actually kind of make the consequences pretty clear. Yeah. So, but... Like, but, for example, in the Wild Towns game, your character uh, has been forced by law enforcement into doing very moral, morally objectionable things, you know. Um, and you realize you could stop doing that, but that would have personal repercussions mm-hmm. for your character. And so you have to weigh that in. So, anyway, sorry. So be yeah, about that, but so but still, I have to think long and hard about what I want to do. Yeah, because everything's going to have consequences and ben- different benefits. So I have to I have to do like a cost benefit analysis, right, on everything to determine what would be the best course of action. Right. With with Eclipse phase, I have to think about it, but I have to think about it in a totally different way. Now I I, I have basically what our choices are, but now I got to think. Okay, I know what I know some stuff that could happen, but I also have to take into account the shit that we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Which uh, you know, mostly in your games, the stuff, the shit we don't know, isn't always. It's not always huge. Like we right. always know, there's always going to be some se- hidden stuff we don't know. Right. But we can deal with it. It's usually a manageable size. Right. In the case of Caleb's game, it's one decision that apparently doesn't. This looks like a you know a minor minor alteration could lead us to a boss fight. Right. Right. And we're gonna have to deal with that. Right. So essentially, at this point now in this game, I'm packing. I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to start packing, you know, a lot more weapons. I need, okay, I need to just basically make sure I'm ready for war every single moment of the day. Right. So, I mean, yeah, that that's the kind of thing. Um, and it, it and that also is very oh, clever. Oh, nanosheens. Totally getting those. Oh, the metasheens? Metasheens, yeah. Yes. The healing uh, 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 medical equipment, uh, nanoware, you know, like cyber, cyber, uh, cybernetics only. Even better. Um yeah, that's the kind of thing is uh, – and that's a really – you see, that's how Caleb's Choice has really enhanced the role-playing in the campaign because it's changed your character, how you're role-playing your character. So it's showing how you're changing. It's violated your expectations at the beginning, and now you're adapting to that style of play. And that's really like, oh, my God, it's emphasizing the conspiracy horror angle of it, the mystery of it, uh, which is great. And yeah. truly making me want to trust no one. Yeah, exactly, which, you know, again, okay. reinforces yeah. the theme And while the talents, there are some people I trust. Right. You know, some of the people in there, I just know, no, these guys are solid. Yeah. 
Uh, and I would actually be really surprised and actually kind of weirded out if later they betrayed us after oh, this much uh, time. What NPCs? I'm actually thinking like um, the two cops oh, okay, by this yeah. point. Yeah. If they just totally sell us the fuck out. <laughs> yeah. I would actually be like, oh, dude, come on. Yeah. Uh, I would it wouldn't I wouldn't be pissed off and Right. Like, that would be violating that would be the wrong expectation to violate, you know, because mm-hmm. yeah. uh, that would make no sense. But yeah, so. actually I would say in Caleb's game, if someone turned out to be a solid guy that wouldn't betray us, it would shock the crap out of me. <laughs> but it would be great. Like yeah. oh oh my god. I yeah. found an honest person. Yeah. In this world of lies and treachery. He's like so. we as like we found one of the rarest flowers of all. Yeah, exactly. So um yeah, so that that's kind of the, the sums up the design versus style. There's no it, it, your style. It reflects you, what you th- like in a G, uh, uh, in game and what what you get out of running games. I mean, again, for me, obviously, I make all these hard. I make players confront all these hard, hard moral, moral choices because that's what I'm really interested in to see if players will like. Ah, I will be the hero and I will do the right thing regardless of the cost. Or I mean, like, eh, like I'm it. gonna live. Yeah, I'm <laughs> gonna live and I'm gonna get rewards. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's kind of that's endlessly fascinating to me. Caleb's obviously wanting to emphasize like we are being manipulated. Everything is you know the, kind of yeah. going. But that's what the thing I love about both of you is yeah. G, both of your GM styles. Yeah, is no matter what I make as a character, mm-hmm. by five sessions he would have changed somehow. Yeah, not maybe not in five sessions, maybe not fundamentally changed, mm-hmm. but changed enough that I'm not the same person character I was five sessions ago. So that's yeah. I mean, that's in the next episode. I think we'll we'll get into more of like designing adventures for a campaign and like talking about how to make player characters change over time. Uh, but yeah, that's that's sort of so that that's but, a good point. Because I was uh, thinking of I was thinking of Kyrop. Yeah. You know, I I kind of was going to have him as you know a monster that has to hide. Yeah. But that cha- five sessions later, that yeah. really that wasn't exactly what I was doing. Exactly. Yeah. You you. That's one of the reasons why I know they're getting a little off topic. I guess kind of off topic, but um, from our Top main I topic. still think it kind of fits. Um, that's why when players write these incredibly long, elaborate backstories for their player characters at the beginning of the game, I just like because uh, you, your character, you you have to grow into your player character in a sense. Like mm-hmm. you have to, you don't know who he is until you actually play him and you get a sense of what you want to do with him as a, as a player. Like for me, Bartleby has been real. I've only now beginning to get a sense of what he's like. Um, his central dilemma, like, you know, I've been playing him as obviously a ruthless killing, you know, machine psych, you know, psionic, you know, that I think is solid. Yeah. Because I, I mean, my character was like my, the backstory I wrote was that he was rescued by firewall. Um, he was going to get killed, but they rescued him. And now he believes in Firewall. The thing is, he also has this delusion that he believes his sister was kidnapped by the Red Queen in a simul space. But the thing is, in reality, he doesn't even know if he had... Like, in reality, it may, he may not even have a sister. Mm-hmm. And the Red Queen is... Who Who the fuck knows? So he's made up this entire delusion in order to... Uh, and it's only the last session I realized, he doesn't want to be... Known, like, he's part of the Lost Generation, which is in the... Um, Eclipse Phase Universe, basically, people that were raised in an in a, uh, artificial reality uh, that was sped up, time was sped up, so that they, it was 16 times faster, so in three years they experienced, um, you know, 18 years, or six years mm-hmm. they experienced 18 years. Um, 
So because they wanted to repopulate Earth after 95% of the population, they wanted to repopulate it quickly. The only thing is most all these kids were fucking crazy, and most of them were killers. And the thing is he doesn't like being perceived as a killer and a monster. He wants to be a good person, but he just doesn't know how. So this the struggle between being civilized and because he, he looks up, he identifies with Firewall. So now I figured out, oh, he wants to be a good guy because Firewall saved him. He wants to be like Firewall. And so he's trying to do everything like Firewall, and now he's just this, you know, fragile on the inside kind of complex, weird character. Mm. So anyways, uh, um, but it took me like 10 or 12 sessions to figure that out. Well, uh, so you, yeah, you have to I, I remember it. like in Kyrop, I wrote a huge backstory for him. Yeah. But it was more just, this is what happened in his past. Right. But also I started the game, he had pretty much, well, really turned into a different person. Right. Figuratively and literally. Right. So I was still kind of playing him fresh, too. Right. But your archetype changed. Like, at first you wanted the monster lurking in the shadows, and now you become, like, a but then I, I, famous person. Yeah. But then now I, yeah, but now I bought off that. I actually uh. saved up the points and bought off that disadvantage. Right. So, um, so that's, again, how the style uh, uh, has sort of affected you. And, I yeah, I actually, Preston, it took me a while to get him down, too. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we and we can get into this uh, uh, more in the next episode as well, but... Uh, for you, the listeners out there, well, I mean, before we go, though, I, I want to tell you, like, other GMs that you play with or anything else, what kind of styles have you noticed? What kind of stylistic changes are, are, that you like or you don't like? I mean, when you've been playing and running games, um, and we can talk about other GMs that we both played on. For example, Scott Glancy, mm-hmm. he obviously is a little, clo- obviously much closer toward, not not a little closer to the old school thing of, like, this is based on history, this is based on research, you're, you're a normal human uh, you only do what normal humans can do. I mean, he's not. He does provide some help. I mean, he's not like mm-hmm. poker face. Won't tell you anything. You know, he wants to. He wants to have a fun time too. <laughs> he's not like, yeah, oh, you're going off four hours chasing Charlie Chaplin. Eh, that's what you decided to do. Um, but I don't know. What, what What do you think, sir? I played with many a GM in my time. Yeah. Obviously, um, I, there are some styles that I don't really care for. Like one is a bad combination. You know the person he'll let you do whatever you want. Yeah, but then but he'll try to but then he'll try to make that like he'll try to pretend like that was an integral part of the story, and you can obviously tell it wasn't. It's you know I guess it's well hmm. I don't like ooh, I I like I don't want to ever be to people ever to think I'm railroading, so I have to so I'll have to make them think that no this was totally exactly part of the story, and a lot of the times you can just tell. Like, if we go off on a tangent because we think it's, you know, fun, or if we just, we're convinced there's something there, and suddenly the GM just sh- shifts gears, and like, you know, yeah, yes, okay, well, like, we're, we're ready to go. Like, you can just tell, you really didn't plan on this, did you? And he's like, no, 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 I, I swear. <laughs> yeah. So you, you, you don't want play, you, so basically, like, GMs that give too much player agency is kind of a problem mm. for you. Like, you want them to be able to push back to you to certain degree. Yeah. Like, uh, um, like if I, if, I'm a game, if we're in a game with you, yeah, and we start to go off on something, yeah, you'll, you will humor us, yeah. But you, I think you have that ability. You dexterously just kind of put us back on track, right? Without, and you usually don't even have to railroad, or right. or you make it seem like you're not railroading. <laughs> you're very good at that. Um, well, for me, again, I, I, my, my whole approach is based on this ecosystem idea where, and, and I know I've told this before, where actions have consequences and everybody in this little, this little mm-hmm. universe of different character actors, you know, players and NPCs, are all going to be doing their own thing. And every action you have will have a consequence. So you, you go off on your own, well, 
you're, the the stuff you care about is going to suffer as a result. So, well, or another thing, um, yeah. you know, if in your games, if we you know we come across something that we're, we suddenly get distracted by, you do indulge us for a little while, yeah, just for a little while. Like when we we encounter, like I think the first time we encountered Balgrin, yeah, and you made the unfortunate mistake of doing the voice that we've yes, 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 yes that you did you you indulged us yeah but you also but also but i think you also knew we weren't going to just hold up on this forever yeah we would eventually you know we get our fill and we'd go right back on right 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 and i think that's one this kind of falls in order against you know player gm trust right and us knowing each other you know we're going to get back on track right so it's okay to have like, all right, let's just you know have this okay like it's like well they're still okay they're still eating the main course but all right we'll have a little little dessert first and yeah so I think that's one of the main style decisions a, 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 D, a GM has is how much agency the players have versus how much agency the GM has how much control is are, is each side of the screen comfortable with you know do you want the players totally in control which you you you're saying I haven't played in a game like that I don't think. That Where I the players are totally no, yeah. I don't either. Well, well, I mean, you you you're just describing that one games who are like that. Like, well, yeah, but I don't. So, I, yeah, I've you been, don't like that. But I, I haven't encountered it very often. But the few right. times I have, I do not like it. Right. And on the other hand, you know, there there no, are the to- old school GMs that are like uh, my way or the highway. Either well, they're either railroading all I've the only, time, yeah. which is horrible, just a bad design yeah. decision. Period. Or the ones that never give you any feedback. The ones that are just like. You do what you do. I'm not gonna. Yeah, and that's the thing. I don't. I've I've only been in one game like that. I, yeah, it was a long time ago. Right, like just after high school. But I hated it. Right, because he was like, okay, he let us do whatever we wanted, but you know, if we were getting off on the wrong track or we missed or we were gonna, like you know missing the plot, he would just you know once again like just sit there like all right, you're doing whatever, and I hated it. it actually, yeah. I it got it started grating on me. I guess it was because this the look he was giving us was just this blank shit and I I started getting pissed off. Yeah. And uh you know I that game ended after one session. Right. So Yeah, yeah, you I say it's my opinion you've got to have feedback from the GM and the players. Right. Back so and that forth. that's kind of a style choice as a player. Um some people are comfortable with that, some people aren't. So Yeah, and um, uh, you don't like it doesn't have to be, you know, I don't have it does have to be constant communication and right. whatnot, but we have to know that okay, we are on we are on track. Well, I mean again, that's that's a style thing, and I think there are some there are groups that like that where there's no feedback, where they really have to fucking they're just you know, they, they they really are in hard mode, you know, they really like that kind of stuff. But I mean, uh I love to hear comments from the listeners to see what kind of things they prefer. Like yeah. do they like do they like lots of player agency, no player agency, you know, no feedback from the GM or kind of the happy middle or well, I say the happy middle ground showing my bias, you know, where I let the players do, but like, you know, shit happens. Um, so yeah, uh, so that this kind of uh, hopefully for those of you out there writing adventures and thinking about like Think about what what you're doing in an adventure and what's a design choice and what's a style choice and what you want to emphasize in a game. Like if you're not giving feedback, if you're being like, I'm doing this hard-ass thing where players don't get feedback on their actions, where they don't know if they're doing the right thing or not, and I'm running, you know, a Dungeons & Dragons dungeon crawl, I'm either being like... I love the Tomb of Horrors, and I'm you know love seeing mm-hmm. players die, or I'm a huge asshole, or both. So uh, yeah. if you're not and doing it, a mystery, or if you're doing like Tune or something like that, you know, like a, a happy bunnies and burrows, like you don't really need to be a hard ass about it. So no, and it's also like 
different, whatever. It's also jamming for what you're for different groups. Yeah, like the stuff I planned for my other group, I couldn't plan the same way for this one, and I'm still fig- figuring that out. Right. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. Uh, yeah, your style. Yeah, obviously depends on your player. Like I run games slightly differently. Uh, well, I mean, differently uh, when I'm doing convention games with strangers than what I do with a home group. It's pretty. I mean, I don't. I mean, I can't well, really. You judge can pretty well predict our actions. Yeah. Well, not always. I mean, there, there are times I, I don't. I, well, the thing is, for me, I try and run adventures where I set up adventures where I don't know what you. I don't have any expectations myself about what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. I'm prepared for whatever you do try to do. And uh, to be honest, there are some times where like. You didn't go after the spaceship thing story uh, until like you know two sessions ago, and I kept like, giant no, like "Hey, there's a giant asteroid coming to Earth." Yeah. No, no, you okay? Deal with the other pots first. Yeah, uh, not. Yeah, the- I will say the thing that Aaron pulled off with, uh, yeah, uh, Jason. That yeah, I'm not going to say what, but that conflict. Yeah, I was so proud of him. Yeah, I really was. Yeah, and that I didn't obviously expect. I mean, that that's kind of again giving players a lot of agency. So um, yeah, just think about when you're when you're writing an adventure, what is a design choice and what's a style choice, and what works for you, what works for the group you're going to run. Um, you know, what kind, does your style reinforce the, th- the themes you want to do? Uh, now we've talked about some things, you know, the Bioware versus the conspiracy mystery thing, you know, the Caleb mm-hmm. versus you know Wild Talents thing, the Eclipse Waves versus Wild Talents thing. Uh, but there, you know, a lot you, you, we, can, we can go on and on, like Dungeons and Dragons in the New World campaign. Uh, we did a very character sort of plot based thing that wasn't like there's only a few dungeons in the entire campaign, and mm-hmm. because the players in this group fucking hate them and i like i don't mind tactical combat i'm actually dan is running a D game on sunday nights uh that i'm playing it's it's almost entirely tactical combat and i'm fine with that so i mean i'm okay too but i can do it but no you don't you don't like uh, it. i don't I mean, I, but I, it's not what i don't hate it you don't hate it but you don't like it you wouldn't go out of your way to play that you no i wouldn't yeah you wouldn't go out on a sunday night to go play that so no um, where it's literally the first thing is like roll for initiative. You know, that's the first thing we do for our characters mm. most uh, uh, most of the games. So, but I'm fine with that because, you know, I get to hang out and I get to try out the combat and I get to see how the game mechanics work and that's but, fine with but me. But I love the shit we do in our group. Yeah. Because it's mainly, you know, it's like we, we find interaction with each other and the NPCs to right. be the best part. Right. Um, well, I mean, combat can work really too. Like that co- last combat in Close Phase was but epic, I think, but, and just yeah. like ah, I was really but like, "Are I, we going to make this? This is ridiculous." I, I, I prefer combat that means something. Yeah, that to me is the difference between a dungeon crawl and the, the combat we do. Like when we fight, it's not like we're not it's like we're not hunting for treasure and glory and to do tactical shit. It's we're fighting. It's like we know why we're fighting, right? And we know the consequences of losing. It's not just will die and have to be resurrected. There's actual real consequences in it. Right. And that's what I, th- I, that's what I prefer. Right. Because it, I'm, it's, I'm sorry I missed that, that, that final com. Well, I was in prison. Yeah. I'm sorry. Did I mention that? Well, that, that's actually kind of been spoiled on the forums. Like, yeah, so. But yeah, I was in jail, but that final combat, I did come, I did come by and witness the end when people died. Yeah. And uh, they're not coming back. Yeah. People are dead. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, that works. Uh, But you don't want to have, like, an overly gritty thing where character, you know, intense role-playing, but characters die instantly or, you know, very easily, you know, like, 
Call of Cthulhu characters where you have eight hit points. You definitely don't want to have a lot of gunfights in that game if you want characters to mean something. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So I think we, we've kind of given you guys uh, some some food for thought when designing adventures. Uh, I think Switch next, that around in your mouth for a while. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the next episode, we'll talk about... Uh, I know we'll definitely talk about designing adventures for a campaign, an ongoing campaign, how it's different from standalone, building on the themes you are. Uh, I know one of my big challenges when writing... Um, Adventures for a campaign as opposed to one shots is not adding in new shit halfway through the campaign because you got to like tie up the th- plot mm. threads you've already established. Because you know, the Wild Towns campaign, oh god, there's so much shit going on in this world, it's so awesome, you guys. But oh, I've already got like 12 plot threads, so I kind of need to tie that shit up. And we're not going to get to the one you want to get to. Uh, well, I've already, th- I mean, the 12 that I want to get to all those too, but I want to get the other 30 that I'm thinking of as well. I just, we're cur- it's a curse, it is a curse, so because uh, I'm horrible monsters. So, Indeed. uh, next up, we will have. Of Tom read a letter. It's a letter. It's but it's 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 a different kind of letter, and Ross will be involved in this. Ooh. Sorry about and, that. And uh, we'll see you guys next. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, and I it's a I, it's a letter kind of, but I'm planning to do this kind of thing kind of differently. Is I'll be doing a series of top ten lists, and these I won't be so much a letter as I have my list, and then I will talk about why I think each one should be where it is on the list, and then Ross has actually been invited into this one. Ooh. Yeah, so he can comment, rebut, or uh, make fart noises if he wants to. <sighs> I don't want to. I, right, I'm, no. I'm but, not gonna. I'm gonna. I'm that now they expect it, so I can't. Vi- that's why I mentioned it. Yeah. So you won't do it. So that'll violate their expectations. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but this one is what I think are the uh, top ten most cinematic firearms. Okay. Now in this list, this is actual real weapons that I think people really think of, and this goes for gaming too, because when you're equipping a character for a modern game, you know, forget weapons. That's one of the first thing you think of is which guns am I going to get? Right. And I think there are some that are mentioned more than others, and this is just my top ten list. All right. Okay. So was right. Okay. Number ten, the Browning M2 machine gun. I say that I use this one because even people might not know what it's called. Everyone knows what this weapon looks like. Oh, it's a it's standard fifty. Yeah, caliber. A standard fifty caliber machine gun. Yeah. It's uh, like Paul Kersey used it in a De- Death Wish Four. Right, that f- big fight with the gangsters. Where yeah. The, the guy carrying the ammo with him while he's just mowing them. Right. All down. Belt fed. Yeah, uh, belt, and we're uh, General Jack D. Ripper from uh, uh, Doctor Strangelove. When he was in his office and the troops were storming that Air Force base he was under command of, that's the gun he pulled out of his golf bag. I thought that was a thirty cal. No, uh, that was a, that was a Browning M two, huh. and right. he was totally holding it wrong because you know he's holding it where the you know heat exhaust is. Yeah, the same thing that Paul Kersey did that also in Death Wish. Right. Well, it's supposed to be mounted. Yeah, it's supposed to be mounted. It's not but, a man. But I think, weapon. but it's the reason I it's on my list is everyone knows what it is, even if they don't know what it's called. Right. And I, it's also and it's fifty caliber bullets. So yeah, no. The, the last twenty minutes of the Rambo Four have taught us what fifty caliber rounds really do when they hit someone. Yeah, 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 yeah. That had a boat with a, a twin twin linked uh, fifty cal on it. Yeah. So yeah. But that's but I think 
that's that qualifies it as a cinematic weapon. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. All right, number nine, the HK MP5. Because once again, oh, this, yeah. is, this is another weapon. Everyone knows what it looks like, right? And it's, I think, and of course, you know, die, you know, Die Hard movie was the primary weapon of the Die Hard movie of the terrorists of the terrorists. And John McClane had one through most of it too. Yeah, because he killed one and took it. So. Exactly. The, now I have a machine gun. Yeah, but it's like what's one of the most you know widely known and used weapons. Submachine guns. Yeah, submachine guns in the world. Right. Um, I mean, it's a standard for SWAT teams and law enforcement. And, and, well, counter 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 terrorism units. That's right. The right. Most, that's a primary um, weapon. It's. Well, I wouldn't say primary, uh, but I mean it's certainly popular. I mean, I don't think there's there's anything that is the single primary weapon because there's so many. Yeah. The thing about the MP5 though is there's so many variants. variants yeah. yeah, but that's uh, why I it's I mentioned like I'll say it's the HK MP5 and variants. Okay, because if anything, Call of Duty has taught me it's that there's a fucking lot of MP5 variants. Yeah, Heckler and Coke make a good weapon. Yep, true. But that's why that's why that's Word. on my list. And uh, okay, number eight, the M16A1. Yeah. Once again, everyone knows what, and actually, most people know could rec- will recognize this weapon by sight and name. Right, they see it, they know that is an M sixteen. Right now, um, it's not used in the games a lot. I don't, you know, I haven't had any people where they use it unless I like to use it with the you know the M two hundred three grenade launcher clipped on. Right, and uh, of course, Tony Montana made the made the weapon famous. I think right, exactly with the M two hundred three grenade launcher. Um, but it's one of the most well most well known assault rifles in the world. Right, and that's why I think it deserves. It's on the list because anytime anyone uses this weapon, you know exactly what it is. Right, and it's almost universal. Most people know what this is. Right. No, I I, I agree. Um, one thing I find interesting about the M16, you know, is you see images. Uh, you know, back in Vietnam, it was you know you saw the people carrying the U.S. soldiers carrying as a very the, the standard mm-hmm. the basic weapon, but. Like you see it now, actually being used in the world, like by soldiers, and they they put bullpup attachments on it. They put all kinds of scopes and accessories on it, like in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, they have like you know, I'm not like uh, a firearms guy. I don't have, mm-hmm. I don't own any guns. I'm not opposed to it. Uh, I just don't have the money for it. Exactly. Um, but. A lot of people in the firearms community call people that put on too many accessories space. You know, they may call those guns space guns. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a derogatory term. Oh, you've got a space gun because you put you know all this fancy holster on it, bull bulb attachment, laser sight, Night scope, sight, yeah. yeah, and all this other sh- you know u- useless shit. But like the soldiers in Iraq, they really fucking put a lot of mods on their mm-hmm. gun, and I find that interesting. How you, like you wouldn't necessarily recognize the M16 of Iraq as the one that is From in Vietnam. Vietnam, because it's really... Because, you know, it's the M16, but it's really changed over the yeah. years. So. And a good gun does evolve. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, number seven, the Desert Eagle .50 AE. You, I should not have to explain why this is on the list. Oh, my God. Because it's a... I think it's because people hear it, and it's a fifty caliber handgun. doesn't mean it fires a fifty caliber rifle round. But it packs. It's a. But it is a fifty caliber pistol round. Yeah. Different, but it's still like it's like the heavy handgun people know about. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, like or, to- yeah. bullet tooth Tony and Snatch. Even, right. Or, you know, just point five zero. Right. Right. Now, again, what's interesting? Um, 
about the Desert Eagle is you have that cinematic thing of where, but a lot of people think it's a useless handgun, you know, in real life because yeah. it's too big and it's too exotic. And uh, it really takes some skill and practice to use, right? Because right. it's so heavy and so right. big. Bullets itself are expensive. And in fact, uh, I know it's like the you know the bottom of the barrel has to be weighted down so the so the recoil doesn't fling your you know, arm up into your head, right? Um, now what's interesting though is in role playing games is that they never put the, the weapon stats almost never reflect the the negatives of the weapon. No, but they always give it like a ridiculous damage, like Call of Cthulhu, or maybe it's even the Delta Green book. It's just fucking ridiculous. They give it like something insane, like two d six or three d six plus four damage for a desert. Yeah, Eagle. Palladium did the same thing. Yeah, it's like. Way out of line because yeah, it's a big bullet, but it's like in the same league as three fifty sevens, and yeah. you know, like a Casul is like just as deadly, you know, yeah. probably even better. The four fifty four, yeah, raging four, raging bull Casul. Yeah, there's actually several variants. Yeah. There's several uh, four fifty four Casuls. But, but anyway, but still, it deserves to be on the cinematic list. I think. Oh yeah, no, definitely. Oh, okay, definitely. All right, number six, the GE M one thirty four minigun. Yes. Once again, Terminator, Predator and Terminator 2 really made this weapon. Predator 1 and Terminator 2. Yes. Yeah. Um, but it's also, um, but it's, there's no, but there was no, uh, it was no accident that it was Jesse Ventura in Predator and Arnold in T2 that used this weapon because you have to be that size right. to use it. Well, I mean, that's the thing. It's not meant to it's be carried. It's not meant to be carried. It's a mounted weapon. It's meant for helicopters and, and you know, trucks and shit like that. Like, a human being, even Jesse Ventura or Arnold in his prime, could not carry more than a few seconds worth of ammo for it. Um, yeah. Plus the recoil and all this other stuff would make it. Now, what's interesting, again, is like um, I find about it is like how it started. And it was really Predator like that started mm-hmm. it, made it. Old like, Painless. Yeah, Old Painless. And then it moved on to video games. And video games is like Return to Wolfenstein and Doom. Where it's like, you know, the next wet one of the weapons the characters can get. The chain, or the you know, chain gun. Yeah, the chain was. gun. And then it, 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 from there, it's just like, even today, like, you can get, like, in Call of Duty games, there's a minigun you can but, carry. Well, in, in Modern Warfare 1, it was still mounted to a helicopter. You got into the helicopter to use it. Well, no, I think, well, in some of them, it depends on which one you're talking about, but some of them you can get them as, like, a bonus, or there's, like, a zombie mode, oh, in, yeah. uh, and what, that's one of the weapons you get in the zombie mode. So um, it, it just depends on which game but you're talking about. that yeah. is, I can, th- that is an extremely cinematic weapon. Yeah, no, yeah. you know, it's interesting, uh, another, uh, in real life, there's, like, uh, only 113 of them in circulation or something like that. Mm. And each one is, you know, basically they're grandfathered in. They're illegal to buy and make mm. now for personal use, obviously. And the hundred or so that are available, like the people who own them have special licenses to collect yeah. collector's licenses, oh. basically. But I, I got this, I got this really um, like loaded with bonus features copy of T2. Yeah. And it's got some, the, the weapons training that all the actors had to go through. Yeah. And, um, Fun fact it was James Cameron who volunteered to fire the minigun first. Yeah, and he said, and it was it shows him on this like he's firing this thing, and it, it's it, it's still you know he's holding it. It's like a much lighter weight version. Yeah, but he's also got some support on it so he can hold it. Yeah, and he said, and he fired. He's like, that's it. Like, that's it. I, his, I mean, the expert was believe he says that's it's like fucking thing sucks all the oxygen out of the area. Yeah. Yeah, in order to cool it. I mean, it's it's generates a lot of fucking heat. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that that yeah. There's a reason why they aren't and, used in infantry units. And I will even say, and I'm actually going to give a compliment to a Palladium book here. Ooh. Yeah. In uh, Heroes Unlimited uh, Second Edition. Yeah. 
or the ultimate edition, I guess it was. Um, they actually on the weapons list they have the mini for the weapons creator the, the minigun. They say, regardless of what you may have seen in Predator or Terminator Two, a person cannot hold this weapon. Yeah. Now this is a superhero. They mentioned it's a superhero game, so you could have super strength and do it. Yeah. And also they're cool. So yeah. here are the stats for it. <laughs> I will give credit where credit's due. They actually yeah. acknowledge you're not supposed to hold this it's weapon. It's ridiculous. Yeah. All right. Cool. Cool. All right. That was okay. number five. The 1911 Colt 45 automatic pistol. Right. I this is a special mention because this is the hundredth year this weapon's been in circulation. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And a weapon, a weapon that has been in this in this long in circulation with as little modification as it has gotten, is worthy of respect. Yeah. Now I mention this also in gaming because it's the weapon everyone's going to choose if they have a choice of pistol. Why? Because it's a handgun and it does more damage than a nine millimeter or a thirty-eight. Well. It, statistically, in just about every game, the forty-five automatic does more damage than a nine millimeter or a thirty-eight pistol. Well, thirty-eight, yeah, but I think, well, I mean, it kind of depends. Especially if you get a really clever munchkin would get, you know, an auto pistol with full auto, and then just like ah, but, burst fire, yeah. But uh, it's, but the weapon, the standard pistol, everyone's going to pick up is uh, is a, the one with the rolls the most dice, yes, which and is that, be and the that is the Colt forty-five, yeah. right. Yeah, I think I think in Palladium games it's particularly bad. I think like a forty five does forty six damage, where like yeah. a nine millimeter does two d six. It's literally twice as more, twice as uh, uh, does twice as much damage as the uh, nine millimeter. Which of course, but we're not going to bring logic Definitely into deserves this. the number spot, five spot for me on the cinematic weapons list. Yeah, all right, all right. Number four, the three fifty seven Magnum. I should not have to explain why this is on there. Dirty Harry. Dirty Harry. Yeah. Just two words. Dirty Harry. Yeah, I mean, what Which, else can you say? I mean, that gun was out before that movie came out, but that, well, yeah, but that but it would that, be awkward the but, other but, way but around. That, but well, actually, for many several years. Oh yeah, before, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was after that movie came out, the sales quadrupled. Oh sure. But they said it was. Uh, I was watching a thing about it. And they said fun. The fun fact was, people that bought it were in t- too intimidated to use it. Right. Because they were because you know they heard like could blow your head clean off. Right. And so they were terrified to shoot the gun. Because they were afraid, like, well, like this is probably going to break my arm when I fire it. Yeah, I could see that. Um, yeah, with... Uh, but this is like the first gun that gets its own speech. Yeah. You know, when everyone, when you mentioned a three fifty seven Magnum, most people will recall, I know what you're thinking. Well, even if they haven't seen the movie, they know the speech. I mean, yeah, that's how like, powerful yeah, it is. Like, dude, did I fire six shots or only five? Right. Um it was interesting you mentioned like the sales of guns. Like, I think a lot of firearm manufacturers see movies as uh, like a primary way to market their <laughs> guns, um, and there's just so much written up in the in the movie. Yeah. Um, I'll admit, I'll probably mention. The, well, this is perfect in, uh, to mention the greatest website of all time, or one of them is the Internet Movie Firearms Database. Actually, I'm a frequent goer of that. Yeah, I'm not surprised because uh, yeah, it, it, you can look up any almost any action movie or any movie with guns in it and it'll tell you exactly what gun that all the characters were using like if you look up the expendables oh my god it's insane Packed. yeah it's every single character's gun every weird little weapon like like you know even you and i we can recognize most types of guns mm-hmm. we may not like that's a 45 that's a nine mil. you know that's a glock or that's this a is like the, the model number this serial, yeah, like, there's a lot of what grips, you know, they were using, mm-hmm. like how the weapon was accessorized and the knives that were used. I mean, it was in. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's great. Now, now we're on the top three. Ooh. Number three, the AK-47. 
Yeah. And I know this isn't patriotic, but that is the assault rifle. It is the assault rifle of the 20th century. And uh, it's yeah. And I'm and anyone anyone who's been in Vietnam will know it's if you compared the M16 to the AK47, there is no contest. The AK47 was the better rifle. Well, I mean, yeah, overall, because of its reliability, but once the uh, later the, on, well, once they well, especially the early M16. Yeah, the early M16. Yeah, no contest. Yeah, because of the mechanical. Failures. But yeah, they said uh, the, the AK-47 is one of the most reliable assault rifles ever made, and once again, everyone in the world knows what an AK-47 looks like. Right, and then you have uh, um, not quite as iconic as Dirty Harry, but you have the um, Lords of War, Lord mm. of War thing, uh, describing the the life. Uh, cycle of an AK-47 mm. bullet, and, uh, which is great. There's also a guy, I forget the guy's name, but he came up with a book called The Gun, which yeah. is basically a written history of the AK-47. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, yeah, cinematic weapon, yeah. AKs, yeah. And also, exactly. another fun fact, that the Kalashnikov, the guy that created the AK-47, and the guy that in, that created the M-16 are really close friends. Oh, yeah. They hang out all, they basically they hang out a lot. Yeah. No, there's... I think Wire did a pretty good detailed write up of that. Uh, and their, their Wikipedia articles are pretty pretty fascinating. So yeah. Anyway, anyway, number two, the twelve gauge shotgun, and I don't mention any particular cut type because it's just the twelve gauge shotgun. Well, there's two variant. I mean, like, there's- oh, there's variants, but ev- to everyone. It's a 12-gauge shotgun. A lot of people don't even know there's another gauge of shotgun besides a 12. Gauge is, but yeah. yeah but but it's, you know, whether, it, you know, whether it's a pistol grip, pump action Ithaca, whether it's a police Remington 12-gauge, a Spaz 15. Or just a breech-loading double-barrel 12-gauge exactly. shotgun. Yeah. The 12, it's, it's one of the, the most used types of weapons and ammo ever in movies and games. Yeah. And uh, anyone who wants a shotgun gets a 12-gauge shotgun. Right. Because again, there are no other gauges. <laughs> no, there are not. Um, and they always, uh, of course, really gritty game or really detailed games will have different, bu- you know, shotgun like, loads. You know, solid, like solid slug, solid versus buckshot, and if they or dragon's breath. Dragon's breath, like yeah. I found out about uh, in White Wolf. Yeah, you know? and then uh, there's but, YouTube videos of it now of people yeah, using or dragons. rock salt, or rock salt. Yeah, that's in Call of Cthulhu too. So and, uh, uh, and Kill Bill Volume Two. Yeah, yeah, he's at, yeah. Great. So. Uh, but yeah, whenever anyone thinks a shotgun, it's always a 12-gauge shotgun. Yeah. So that's why it's it has to be number two for me. Right. Okay. But, so. like, and now, the num- what I think is the number one most cinematic weapon of all, the 1921 Thompson submachine gun. The Chicago typewriter, the Tommy gun, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. That weapon, I think, is one of the most, is the most cinematic weapon ever. Because yeah. it's, it is so, so iconic. Right, it defined a genre of film, and it defines uh, a genre of gaming, like Call of Cthulhu, uh, Lovecraftian yeah. horror gaming. It's the Tommy gun. Guns and Dy- Dynamite, yeah. Um, Tommy Guns, Dynamite, and Shotguns. Yeah. Uh, well, Shotguns kind of like a distant third from Tommy mm. Guns and Dynamite, yeah. but uh, the Tom, yeah. but the Tom, the Tommy Gun is like I think it. Yeah. Because uh, also, you know, it, it with the, the, the drum magazine, you have the gangsters, but you with, like, standard clip mags, you then you, like, World War II soldiers yeah. uh, use Tommy guns quite a bit, so... Uh, yeah, and, um, but as you said, it, yeah, it defined a couple, it defined a, a period of America, yeah. that, that gun. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, uh, yeah, certain, yeah, certain games, like Call of Cthulhu, I think, is, that's the weapon of Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. 
No, it is. I mean, yeah, for I mean, 20s. I mean, for the, yeah, for the most part, it won't save you. Right. But you'll have it. Right. If you're, if, you're, yeah, if you're playing in the 20s, even if you're going up against a color, a color out of space, your character's going to have a Thompson. Right, exactly. He's going to die with it, but he's going to have it. Yeah. And I just think that deserves to be number one on the list. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, what's interesting, a lot of people don't necessarily realize is that they're firing not the uh, 45 ACP pistol rounds. Mm-hmm. So even though it's like a two-handed weapon, it's actually kind of underpowered compared to, say, like an actual rifle. I mean, the rifle, there's but, a big difference between rifle and pistol bullets. So. But, but also, yeah, a lot, and a lot of, I've read some stuff about gangsters loved the Thompson because the ammo was interchangeable with a 45 pistol. Well, exactly, yeah. So uh, you could just you could just get a whole bunch of those rounds and take care of all your weapon needs. Right. Um, and of course they they were doing close range encounters too. So, you know. And they, also you could buy it through the mail. Right. Back, yeah, back, back in the 20s and 30s. Oh, the good old days. So, back before all this. Stuff. And and I know there's some weapons I left out that people might think I shouldn't have, like the BAR maybe. Yeah, I just don't. Yeah, you're a monster. I know, but it's it, that those are good weapons, but I just don't think they're quite as cinematic. Okay, as, as these ten. Well, for the listeners out there, why don't you give us some feedback on what did Todd leave anything out? I thought like I was kind of, I to be honest, I was expecting a, a revolver at some point. A uh, fifty-seven. Well, I mean the cowboy revolver, like uh, oh, the Colt Peacemaker. Yeah, Peacemaker. Yeah. Yeah, I considered putting that on the list. Yeah. But it's I kind of these these are the ones that I kind of I thought of. Okay, and uh, I'm gonna have another one next time. This oh. one is gonna be the top ten, you know, not I don't want to say fake but fictional weapons. Ooh. You know, this this will be stuff that don't actually exist, but still people would recognize. Okay, fair enough. Uh, uh, well, the number one will be my my katana and trench coat. So you know, the, I'm still going with guns. Oh, well, I will do I will do famous swords later. Oh, or ex- uh, ex- melee weapons. Yeah, I'll do, I will do melee because the throwing star has to be on there because it created probably the greatest death ever filmed. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, everything just is the, terrible. Just the, uh. <laughs> I love the look on that guy's face. Uh, yeah, it's a YouTube video. Uh, ask about it on the forums to find out what, what, what Tom's talking about. Or if you know, post on the forums or in the comments. So, uh, uh, And we'll be right back. And we're back. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so we, we got some in, uh, shout outs and we have an anecdote or five or 500 or something like that. So. I, hope, I hope you people have time. <laughs> Um, So for our first shout out uh, I'm going to mention A uh, graphic novel you can read online Called Americas It's about a um, student uh, Who is a big fan of a Series of fantasy novels That are uh, Obviously a parallel to Harry Potter novels And basically he's going From middle school to high school And his friend uh, uh, Moves away Is sent to military school And so he has a lot of stuff to deal with and he, uh, they try to ban the novel at the school library or at the local library, the town library. Um, and so it's about dealing with this controversy, dealing with growing up, dealing with mm-hmm. teachers. Uh, I bring this up because it's well written, it's uh, well drawn, and Caleb likes it. I send a link well, there to you him. Go. And Caleb's 
uh, some of Caleb's friends who are also te- or teachers uh, like it as well, including uh, like professional teachers who are like in their forties and stuff like that. You well, know? I'll be damned. I know it's that good. So why aren't you reading this? You are a monster if you don't read this. So there's a lot of monsters in this world. Well, if they they won't be monsters if they read Americas. So oh, so they become human beings if they read this. Exactly. Okay. So, <laughs> um, Tom, you had uh, uh, one uh, yep. game. Yeah, this is actually a uh, RPG. It's yeah. uh, Cthulhu Dark. Yeah, it is probably one of the most rules-like games I've ever I've ever played. It's literally one one double-sided page. You could put it on a double-sided page. Yeah, as a, and fold it and in half as a brochure. So and uh, you will de- you'll be learning more about it in our uh, in the anecdote. Yeah, but it's re- we recorded two sessions. Yeah, it's of it, literally so. pick a name, pick a profession, and have some six-sided dice. You're good to go. Yeah. That's it, like, and uh, it's it's yeah. We, and by pick a profession, I don't mean and now. So write down these skills for your profession. No, pick and write down a name, write down the, the his profession, and you're done. Yeah. So if you die, it's very easy to get back in the game, um, which was a good thing. The, yeah. Well, yeah, for us. Because <laughs> I don't know if the guy who wrote it expected it to go quite so paranoia ish, like dying off so rapidly but yeah we went that way and oh and it also encourages the other players to fuck over the other players oh my god so Uh, bad it's so hilarious we'll get into more of the mechanics with the uh um anecdote but i will say this they have one rule for combat and there's no monster stats either because the, the the rule is if you fight the monster you die you're dead yeah so lovecrafting horror rules lie Go for it. Um, let's see. Next up, I will do a, a web series called Seven Minutes in Heaven. It's a writer I'm, I'm for familiar with this. Yes, Saturday Night Live, who takes a celebrity and uh, they interviews them in a closet somewhere. And it's seven. It, well, it looks like the same closet. It's the same closet, but I don't know where it is. I don't know. If it, maybe this it's is in a 30, secret closet. It's in the studio somewhere. Purgatory. Uh, yeah. Um, and they've had. I'll link to the one that I like the most, which is Elijah Wood. And it's just hilarious. Like it's, I love hilariously. I normally don't like people being awkward and embarrassing in TV movies, but awkward interviews are great. Like especially, I love, well, especially when they actually get into it. Yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, Elijah Wood interviews him. The, the writer interviews him about uh, the the Hobbit movie and all this mm-hmm. other shit. And it, every episode ends the same way with the writer trying to make out with the guest. And it's so fucking hilarious. Yeah. But if, I, if you like Between Two Ferns with Zach Galifianakis, you'll mm-hmm. love this too. So anyways. But what I like is, and I agree with you, that Elijah Wood is because Elijah Wood gets into it. Yeah. No, I think I, I've watched I mean, all of them. It's awkward, but he's into it. Yeah, I've watched all of them, and they're all the guests like are pretty savvy about it. And they, mm-hmm. they, they really get it, and it's really fun. Everyone has act totally different. Tracy Morgan's pretty insane too well he's just insane period yeah um you had a movie you want yes it's uh okay it's got two titles but i'm gonna go with the one i found it under which was and uh i know this was a while ago but i feel it needs to be mentioned uh it was when our, our movie galleries were closing and they were they were selling off all of their vhs tapes yes so you could get them for a dollar wow so i picked up a lot of old horror movies and one was it was called uh sean and i were shopping yeah and uh picked up a, this copy of a movie called screamers it's got this you know Kind of melting. Well, that's not what it's called. It's real. Well, I know, but I'm I'm going through okay. what I picked up. Okay. So it's it was, you know, it's a box called Screamers, and it's not anything to do with the uh, Peter Weller robot movie. Right. Well, let me just give them the name so that, or give them the names so that people know from the okay. topic. Okay. But you know, the actual okay, the actual title of the movie is 
Island of the Fishmen. Island of the Fishmen. So that's what you that's what you would that's what you Google. Yeah. So. It was nineteen seventy nine, but the movie we, case we found was called it had screamers on it and had this kind of drawn but kind of melty skin body on it screaming. And it says it's like not only are they still alive, but they have no skin. And so we're like, oh, kind of a you know, like you know, the incredible melting man, which I have watched, by the way. Yeah. So like, Who hasn't? and it was like it was it was a buck fifty for this. So we got it and we watched it. Well, the funny thing is, when we started watching it, it has nothing to do with melting people that with no skin. It's about an island of fish people. So the island of the fishmen was an accurate title. Yes, but and we thought, oh, we at first we thought, oh, did someone, you know, like when did someone because I mean, it has like before it gets to the title screamers, it has like some stuff on this island. Yeah, and it has like these people with no names, we don't know who have a clue who they are, go into a cave and get killed. So we're thinking, okay, you know, good people dying. But uh, like, well, I don't see anyone's skin melting off, and then it says screamers. So like, okay, so we it is we didn't get a movie in a different box, but we keep watching it, and then it's fish people. Not bad effects for 1979. I will admit that. But it's we're still we were it's fish. Be, it's fishmen, don't yeah. yeah it's fishmen, like, and we were waiting the whole movie for people to have their skin melt off, and it never happens. Yeah, yeah. I mentioned that because uh, we waited to the entire movie, even through all the credits, just. Wow, that really didn't have any melty people on it. No, no. And so I wondered why the hell did they change the name and the plot on the box? Well, because it, it was it had all the actors had on the back, it had the director, the producer, the year it was released, but it was Screamers. Screamers. Uh but it was really Island of the Fishmen. It's an Italian horror film. Uh, according to its Wikipedia page, so yeah, it's, part it's, of that Ita- late seventies, early eighties, yeah, a guy Italian yeah. schlock, yeah, a uh, guy turning, turning people into fishmen to so they can swim down to this underground Atlantean ruin and bring treasure up for him. It's awfully convoluted to to do some like they do have scuba, they do have like yeah, they have like uh, like you know like diving bells and things yeah. like that. But this guy figures it's this guy figures it's much easier and economic to. Get this scientist and turn people into fishmen so they can do it for him. To be honest, though, like, the fishmen, that sounds marketable. Like, that's something you could sell. Like, I mean, maybe... Like, one like, to like, human, like humanoids from the deep. Well, no, like, one to people who are feel like they've all, they've, they're have a human trapped in... Uh, a fisherman trapped in a human's body. Yeah. I'm sure there's that. And, and then there's, like, Russia and China. Well, yeah. Sign a contract. Okay, we will fulfill your dream if you will sign this work contract to bring treasure up. Yeah, exactly. And then after, like, a year, you yeah. can swim off into the ocean. Especially now with, I mean, all those, you know, uh, furries and other kind of everything. I'm sure there would be thousands of people lining up for this. And that's it. not to mention, you know, forced labor in China and Russia and other you, third world countries. You know they do it. Yeah, oh yeah. And that also, they'll get rid of people clogging up their cities and streets. Yeah, they clog up the oceans. They, and they, it's like, they sharks, space. like sharks will eat them, probably. Hopefully, keep, yeah. Keep their numbers down. <laughs> Um, yeah, I bet the Greenpeace people would do it because then, the, man, those Japanese whalers wouldn't know what the fuck hit them. No, they would not. They'd be like, "Oh God, we're sinking! How could this happen? We didn't see any like, boats." We're slowly but irrevocably sinking, giving us time to evacuate. No, if you're if you're if you're a hardcore enough Green per, Greenpeace person, turn like, yourself into a fish man. It's like it's like you're gonna fuck some like, people shit up. Like sink our sink our boats, will you? Yeah, you're gonna empathize a lot more with the whales. Especially if one of you gets caught in a fisherman's net. Then you're going to be like, all right, all fishing boats have to die. So And you can carry a knife and a belt with you. Exactly. Oh, my God. Yeah. So Greenpeace people, turn yourself into fishmen. Yeah. Or you're really just a poser, but, not really. But make sure it's a fishman, you're, it's a fishman thing and not, we'll melt your skin off. 
Well, I mean that that's obviously not a problem. I mean that never happened, right? Exactly. So, um, anyway, I have two movies too. Uh, one is Messiah of Evil, uh, which is a 1973 Lovecraftian horror film that is public <coughs> domain. You can watch the whole thing on YouTube or download it from archive.org. There were zombies in there. I, to be honest, I haven't watched it myself. It's just I've read the. You're description doing an of a, impure uh, shout out here. It's free. It the whole thing's free and online for free. Have I mentioned that it's free legitimately? Like it's public domain. Like you could even like. Downloaded and then edited and you throw your, your own stuff. Yeah, yeah. Because public domain. Fuck it. Why not? So deal with God it. God bless public domain. Yeah, exactly. Deal with it, Tom. It's it's dealt with. Good. Uh, next up, another uh, one more movie. Cargo, which is a sci-fi film. Uh, I have. I, I did watch this. Uh, did you watch it? Not with you. Oh, I you... just watched it on my own. Oh, okay, good. Um, kind of a. It's a German German movie in space. Well, it's it's a Swiss movie, but it's in the part of Swiss. It was made by the German speaking Swiss. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Switzerland is just complicated. I'm um, sure our Swiss listeners are like, "Ah, oh, you Americans, you acknowledge that we speak more than one language here." Oh, so exactly. uh, I, I don't. I can't. I'm not going to try a German Swiss accent. I can't even begin to imagine what that. Anyway, it's about people who are on a cargo ship, uh, deep space. Uh, to resupply a space station, and oh, people start dying, and weird things start yeah. happening. And, oh, and Earth's uninhabitable for some. Yeah, so everyone's living in space in space stations around Earth. It's eclipse phase minus some of the transhumanist stuff, i.e., digital uploading. So, but it's about like the most, the closest movie I've seen to eclipse phase. My God, could you imagine a, a movie with that kind of stuff in it? Mm-hmm. That'd be good. I'd be like, you'd have to do a, that. Would be complex. That'd be hard to pull oh. off. Because okay, there's I, so much shit in Eclipse Space that requires okay. explaining. A movie that does some of it. It's not a good movie. Like, just the digital uploading brain thing would yeah. be enough. Like, well, okay, I'm going to mention... Not uplifting yeah. animals. But just, I'm going to mention a movie. Um, I, for, I forget the title, but you might, you'll know it. Probably what I'm talking about. It was an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie about cloning. Uh, the Seventh Day? Yeah. Sixth Day? But it's it's some of that stuff where, like, it's downloading the mind, a previous recorded mind... Uh, recorded Right, right. Yeah, the bad guys keep dying and they keep coming back and they have little tattoos in their mouth. Yeah, but they don't remember dying. Right. Right. So, So, yeah, that's kind of along the same lines. Yeah, no, I mean, some of those individual tropes have shown up, especially in, there's a lot of novels out there that have that stuff, but we're, 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 you know. Anyways, my last shout out is uh, Bastion. It's a video game. I've seen Uh, you play that on Steam a lot. Yeah, it's on Steam. Uh, It took me about six, seven hours to beat, uh, but it's only like 10, 15 bucks. Uh, It's very lavish. It's an action RPG, kind of like The Secret of Mana. Illusion of Gaia, yeah, but with really good graphics, really great soundtrack, and uh, it's fun. So, what are you waiting for? Just pl- oh, dynamic narration—that's its gimmick. Uh, whenever you do something, the narrator will—he's constantly narrating shit. But like, if you die, like, oh, but the kid fell off the cloud, but he came right back because he was too tough to die. Uh, and nice. then, so was, is this as good a voice as like the rapper from uh, Dead Island? Oh, it's much better. It's okay. it's it's like the dude, or uh, no? It's it's like the cowboy. It's Sam Elliott from The Big Lebowski, basically, no. kind of. Okay, close. Same same cowboyish kind of thing. I'm just talking too much about this. You're fine. Yeah. Anyway, so it's a cool game. So check, check it, it out. out. Yeah, bro. Uh, so, anyways, yeah. anecdote. Why don't you tell us, Tom? Yeah. Okay. This was uh, the Cthulhu Dark game we were playing. Uh, Caleb was running it, so you can imagine what that was like. Yeah. And, uh, it was me, you, and Drew. It was basically, I mean, the whole point of the game was, imagine if 
the shit in the Bible was turned over to turned over to Haster, who started to make it real. You re- that's that's essentially everything that ha- was happening. So imagine the Bible as interpreted by a great old one. Yeah, it's not good. Yeah, it was. Yeah, three hours of oh shit! Every uh, you died three times in the game. I died three times. Yeah, you were on your fourth character. This is like a three out two three hour game. But uh, so yeah, it's the uh, Earth was flat. The Earth was flat, and there was an end. Yeah, an end to the an end to the world. So twice I drove off the edge of the world. Yeah. Second time you managed to jump out of the car in time. In time, yes. But and uh, everyone died at least once. Yeah. And since this is a game that actually you can actually make people fail if you can roll against them. Yeah. The basic mechanic is you always succeed on anything you do, unless uh, you go insane, in which case you're you're gone. Or one of the players says, "No, you don't succeed. Here's what will happen instead." And then you have a roll off on the d6, and highest one gets to say what happens. Mm-hmm. So, um, and uh, with our group, it was happening a lot. Well, basically, yeah, I kind of predicted what would happen is that at first no one did, but as soon as the first person did it, we we're like, "Oh, that's how that works." So, uh, like, everyone's going to die now. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, so that was a fun game. And then I ran one on Labor Day, which was. Uh, metagames with seven players at the height. Uh, it was basically Dead Island. Dead Island. You're on an island resort and then zombies. And uh, again, lots of people died. That was one actually I... We had some RPO listeners come in from Oklahoma yeah. City. So I hey, actually didn't die. Then John was a zombie. So yeah. yeah, you were actually pretty conservative. Your first character survived. Who is basically me, right? Like a horror writer, director. So. Yeah. So... No, I was, I was the horror writer, director. Yeah, that's what I was saying. You are basically like... My me as a player character. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. So and uh, um, the challenge was to not metagame so much because I think with our group we all know what to do in a zombie situation. Yeah. I honestly think if there was truly a zombie apocalypse to hit this earth, yeah, we would be completely prepared. <laughs> we would know exactly what to do. Well, if you've read Zombies of the World, it would depend on what kind of zombie species we were dealing with. I mean, if it's talking zombies, we're fucked. Well, you're yeah, you run. Yeah. Well, you run in that one. Well, you can't outrun gray, them. They don't get tired, Tom. I mean, and they're but smart. If it's a, but if it's a gray shambler, well, yeah, then you then you run. You're fine. Then they're they're slow. They're dumb. Or the running zombies. Uh, the twenty eight days later zombies. Yeah, they're they're yeah yeah because they're because they're so so freaking super infectious. Yeah. So it just depends, Tom. Like, I know, like you had two zombie species that were uh, in the uh, must exterminate. It was the, the talking ones and the twenty eight days later one. Yeah, yeah. They're, must ign- must eliminate them. Yeah, exactly. Because they are, uh, if they were re- re- twenty talking zombies, are the Return of the Dead living zombies. What, what was your favorite death in the 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 uh, Dead Island one? Player death. Um, it's a tough one. I have to actually have to say uh, the guy that got crushed by the by the jeep that was yeah. that tried to, that was like tried to clear the jump. You know, was trying to like, jump over the stuff and clear it and. Uh, the thing is, the guy failed because of someone else rolling off against, but the guy that rolled off decided, and here's what happens. You hit this. Uh, no, no, no. You, the jump succeeds. You just hit this guy, and he's dead. Yeah. That, that was, I think, was... Because that was literally his character was introduced there, like, five minutes, like, five... That was, like, five oh, was minutes. Javier, wasn't it? That was Javier. 
uh, Javi, the player. No, that no, no. The second character is Javier, the chauffeur. Yeah. Uh, chauffeur got to the drug sub, the narcotics yeah. smuggling. No, it, was the, it was the actual drug smuggler. Yeah, yeah. No, the first character uh, was the butler, and I can't remember what the butler's name was because he lived five minutes and then he died. Yeah, Javier lived all the way to the sub, and then Done. some. Then the sub sang. But I have to say, it's the jeep. Yeah, the jeep leap, you know, jumping, doing a successful, very awesome uh, leap over something, and then crushes someone to death. That was pretty awesome. That was pretty epic, I have to say. So yeah, it uh, pleased me greatly. So Cthulhu Dark, get it, uh, download it, read it, and then have that ready whenever you want to do a crazy one shot. Uh, if you don't have anything else ready to go, because and then see how many times you can die in three hours. Uh, or not, or I see how many times you can avoid dying in three hours. So, exactly. Uh, yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. Good times. So, good times. Um, that's a very over the top style. So you see, we're linking yeah. it back to the earlier discussion. Um, so yeah, so this has been RPPR episode sixty three, stylish substance. I'm Ross Payton. I'm Tom. Tom Church. Trying to hide out from people, Ross. <laughs> You're doing a bad job. I know. Tom. I'm on the Podca- internet. Yeah, podcasting is not a great way to hide out. Um, okay, well, those people I owe money to, uh, just ignore everything I just said in this episode. No. Everyone else, take it like make it part of your being. There we go. Uh, and we'll see you guys next time. <laughs> Leah, Leah, Leah.